0: Good morning, friends. It's so good to be your brother in Christ. It's good to be a part of this family. I want to ask, before we begin the sermon, I want to ask you something, and, uh, you know, it has to be genuine. It's got to be something that you desire to do. If you want God to speak to your heart, you have to humble yourself before Him and ask Him. And I want to invite us all to pray one more time this morning that God would soften our hearts, open the eyes and ears of our hearts and speak to us, and to gift us with His Spirit in such a way to understand and to live it out. And so I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, No good thing happens outside of your power and grace, your love, and so we submit ourselves to you right now asking that you would gift us with your spirit, help us to build one another up. I pray that you would teach us through your word, through this wonderful letter that you've given to the church now for 2,000 years such a gift to us. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you, uh, would you protect us from the enemy? Would you remove the hindrances from our minds and thoughts, our hearts? And would you do a supernatural work within us? Would you please do what only you can do? Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you guys would, for the next handful of weeks, take time every Sunday morning to pray that God would supernaturally work during our gathering to teach us, Uh, that would be my request to you. If we could do that even before the sermon begins, if you take time every Sunday morning to pray and ask God to speak to your hearts, watch and see what God will do if you're genuinely humble before Him, asking for Him to speak to you. And that's my invitation to you. We are starting a new series today. We are looking at the, the letter of Titus. The letter of Titus is just a couple of chapters long. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to young Titus, and it's really God's blueprint for a healthy and fruitful church. And so, to kind of get us into the, the mindset of this letter, I want to ask you a question. Think back. Do you remember the last time that you started something new? Think about something new you began. Was it a a new sport, a new job, a new task, a new skill? Think back. When's the last time you did something new? Did you feel nervous? Did you feel scared? Did you feel inadequate? When's the last time you tried something new? You know, when we do something new, what we really need is our two things, at least. At least two things. We need a manual and a mentor. A manual and a mentor. We need to know, one, how to do it. And then we need a mentor, like a coach, someone that's been there, done that. Uh, my kids are in outdoor soccer right now. Uh, anybody else going through that? That... Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, you know, we pray. You know, trials come. Uh, my kid, four of my five kids are in soccer. They're doing great. Every soccer team has a coach. You, you need someone to teach you the rules. And, and my wife decided to coach soccer this year for the first time. Uh, she'd never played uh, professional soccer. And so. so... She decides she, we love our kids. She wants to be involved. She wants them to have a good coach. So she reads the rules to soccer. There's rules. There's something called offsides, uh, all kinds of stuff. There's rules to it. You don't just kick a ball in there. There's like order to it. She read the rules, and buddy, she knows the rules. She knows them now. More than I, I don't know the rules. I don't need to know the rules. She's the coach. Uh, she knows the rules. We need a manual and a mentor to do anything. Um, there's a classic American story uh, about uh, a guy named Robert Mark Kamen. Anybody ever heard of that name? Don't ruin it. Don't blow my cover. Robert Mark Kamen. You you may not know his name, uh, but at the age of 17, after the 1964 New York World's Fair, he got beat up by a gang of bullies. And after that, he decided he was going to learn martial arts in order to defend himself. It's true story. He went on to become a screenwriter, and he produced a movie based on his life called The Karate Kid. Anybody ever hear of The Karate Kid? Yeah, a few of you. It's about uh, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel Russo. Uh, I watched it as a kid. I'm not encouraging you to watch it now. I'm just telling you my past. You know, I watched it. And I remember as a kid wanting to be Daniel Russo because it, it was a captivating story. It was like a, it was like a novel where this, this underdog gets abused and mistreated and then this mentor that knows how, to, how f- to help his situation, to solve his problem, teaches him martial arts and then he, you know, he does that. It's <laughs> a great story. If you haven't seen it yet and you're an adult, you see it if you want to. Anyway that reminded me of the letter of Titus because Titus is about a mentor that's training a younger man who doesn't come from his background, isn't his ethnicity, didn't come from his culture, didn't come from his country, and he trained him up to do something that he did not know how to do before. That's what we get in the letter of Titus in the New Testament. It's a short letter Written to a young man named Titus from his mentor, the Apostle Paul. So turn to Titus chapter 1. Just want to give you a little bit of the setting just so you get a feel for the letters. We go into it. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. And the way that the New Testament letters are written, this, he begins with himself. He's the author, and this is what they do all the time. It's the author showing who he is, and then he tells about the letter. So it begins with Paul, but that's who's writing it. Paul's writing this. Paul, a servant of God... And an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began. In his own time he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith... Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. That's how this letter begins. The letter of Titus is part of a collection called the Pastoral Epistles. The word epistles is just a fancy word for letter. It's just a letter, the pastoral letters. These are letters written, uh, and this is one of three letters. You have First and 2 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy. He's also a young pastor. He's a pastor in Ephesus, second largest city in the world, the largest church in the world at that time. And then he writes to Titus, another young man in the faith that he discipled and raised up. Now, Titus was going to go to the island of Crete and oversee the Christians and raise up elders. We've been talking about elders this morning. That was his role. That's what he needed to do as a pastor, as an elder, as a called one by God to go do this. Because there were things in Crete that were left undone. It says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. Well, what was left undone? What's the backstory of Crete? Why did he send them? Well, Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 in your Bible, it's a little bit to the left if you're using an analog Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost. If you're newer to church life, this is you have the life of Jesus 2,000 years ago. He dies on a cross. He raises from the dead. And then at Pentecost, uh, after He rose from the dead... It's what we call the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit came down. He gave that sign for people to know. 3,000 were added to the number. And the apostle Peter preached to the people and the disciples were there, not Judas, but the other 11. Uh, They were there and they they preached Pentecost. And this is where the church began. And in chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Peter is already in the midst of that. And this is the the context of the story. Verse 5. Now, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. There were three main festivals that the Jewish people would travel all the way to Jerusalem from all over the world every year. If you could do it, you would do it. That's the idea. Now, Not everybody could do it every time, but man, they wanted to. Jerusalem would swell from hundreds of thousands to two million people in that one town. It was packed. People were staying all over the place. There were tents and booths sets up, and so... They would be there uh, in Jerusalem, and that's what's happening here. They were people from other countries that converted to Judaism. They converted to Judaism, so they wanted to follow the law. They believed in the Old Testament. This was the one true God, and they're from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, "Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Right? It's the 11 disciples. It's Peter. They're, these are Galileans. They're not from our country. How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? We can hear him We can hear them in our own tongues, our own dialect. A big supernatural, miraculous work was happening. Then it even gives the people so that we would know, even today, 2,000 years ago. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, that's as far west as they thought you could go, both Jews and converts, Cretans, there's our people, this is our people that Titus is ministering to, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. So, back at Pentecost, after Jesus died and rose, you you have the birth of the church, and people from all over the world came to Jerusalem and heard the gospel. When the church began there, there were new converts from Crete. Now, what did those people do after the festival was over? Now, we know from Acts 2, like 47, 42 through 47, they stayed there extra long, right? They stayed there longer because God was moving in a big, powerful way, and they wanted to stay in Jerusalem. They're like, this is a magnificent thing that's happening. We don't want to go home, right? They didn't, have, they didn't have the internet. No one was zooming in. No one was catching a virtual tour of this. So they wanted to stay in Jerusalem because they knew God was working here. So they stayed extra. They started selling their stuff and doing other things so that everybody could stay in their tents, past the festival. Jerusalem had never seen anything like this before. It's like an extended festival. But eventually, all those thousands of people went back to where they lived. So we know that the gospel made its way back to Crete. They got saved in Jerusalem, and they went back to the island of Crete. And uh, if you don't know where the island of Crete is, it's in the Mediterranean Sea. It's one of the largest, it is the largest of the Greek islands. It's long but narrow. It's about 160 miles long, but in some places only 7 miles wide, from 7 to 37 miles wide, an average of like 18 miles, you know, between this island. It's a very skinny, long, narrow island. It's got a mountainous region on the west and on the east. And so the people that lived on the island of Crete were islanders, They're natives. They had little patches of villages there. This is a hard-to-reach place, and it's a hard-to-infiltrate culture. Why is that important? Because God was showing that the gospel can infiltrate any nation, any culture, any people. The good news was given for every, every person on the planet, everywhere in the world, and God was showing that with the Cretes. So, they were hard to reach. God showed His work. However, even though they had the gospel, they didn't know how to, quote, do church. And that's the reason for the letter of Titus. You have a people group in a whole, in a, in, on an island that they know the gospel. They believe in Jesus. They're Christians. But they don't know how to do church. Do you know it's possible... To know the gospel and not know how to do church. To not understand how to do this gathering. Not to understand the elders. That's why Paul says, listen, I left you here on this island because there's things left undone. What are the things left undone? They don't know how to do church. So the purpose of the letter of Titus, for Titus and for us, this is God's blueprint for a healthy and fruitful church. And you see that throughout the letter. It's a short letter, but you read that over and over. And the first thing we learn is that healthy and fruitful churches begin with committed believers. It begins with committed believers. And I want to I encourage you and even inspire you if possible. I'm praying the Holy Spirit inspires you. Inwardly gets your attention with this. God desires for you to be a committed believer. And here we see it takes one. Now, it goes to two. There's a discipleship process. There's multiplication. But God's desire is for you to be a committed believer. And in this, we see a description of what committed believers look like. And I want you to challenge yourself. I want you to be honest with the Holy Spirit. Are you a committed believer? Well, you can look at Titus, and as a mirror, you can hold it up to yourself and say, am I a committed believer based on what I read here? Titus chapter 1, verse, verse 1 and 4. This is the from and to. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, skip a few lines. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. My true son in our common faith. So in the beginning of this letter, we have two men that love God and are committed to him, but yet they're both very different. Very different. Paul is Jewish, Titus is not. Titus is Greek. He's a Greek. He didn't grow up with the same kind of Judaism that Paul grew up with. His name is Greek. If he had converted parents, his name, he would have had a Greek name, or I'm sorry, a Hebrew name. He would have had a Jewish name because that's what they did. That's how you, you, the Jewish line runs through the moms and they begin by naming their kids whatever name, you know, a Jewish name. But Titus's name is Greek. And Jews and Greeks didn't get along back then. If you know anything about the culture in this day, there were many Jews who would not even fraternize with Gentiles and Greeks. They wouldn't eat with them. So these are two unlikely characters coming together and being like father and son. Kind of like Mr. Miyagi and Daniel Larusso, <laughs> Two totally unlikely characters coming together. The name Titus, the Greek name means honorable. His parents named him Honorable, and Titus lived up to that name. He became someone that Paul trusted and saw as valuable. Paul loved Titus. Titus' name is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament, nine times just in 2 Corinthians. So if you want to learn a little bit about Titus, Galatians has him a couple times. 2 Corinthians has him nine times. Titus helped Paul while he was in Corinth, he was a fellow worker, laborer, and not just in Corinth, but Macedonia, all over the place. He was a fellow worker. He's called a fellow laborer, a co-laborer with Paul. He's called his son in the faith here in Titus chapter 1. And they shared ministry together. They did the work together. They weren't acquaintances. They were more than that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I want you, I want to read a little snippet to give the background. Paul's writing to the Corinthian the Corinthians, the Christians at Corinth. He says, in fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. When Paul saw Titus, he drew tremendous encouragement and strength from him. I want you to read that sentence in your own, silently in your own mind. We had no rest. We were troubled in every way conflicts on the outside and fears within. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like, I've got no rest right now? There's conflict on the outside and there's also fears within. It just seems like there's turmoil. I am having no rest. I'm I'm going through something inwardly even because of the circumstances. And Paul says, but when I saw Titus, I felt comforted. Maybe Titus had the gift of encouragement. He was valuable to Paul. He was encouraging to Paul. We read in 2 Corinthians that he helped collect the offerings and brought them to Jerusalem, which means he was trusted And even the people around him trusted him to handle money and bring it uh, from one place clear over to, to Jerusalem to help the believers there. Titus also became an example. He was an example to the church at that time that you did not have to convert to Judaism to become a Christian. Now, this translation is important for us because today we don't really... At least we don't think we struggle with Jew versus Gentile. We don't think that here. We, most of us don't think, oh, you have to be Jewish. But imagine a culture where if you don't follow these sets of cultural norms and laws, then really you don't belong. Titus broke that mold. In Galatians chapter 1, I'll read just a few verses. There's more in Galatians about this. Paul writes, he says, then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those, who, to those recognized as leaders. He's talking about the Jewish leaders. He wanted to share, this is the gospel I'm preaching. It's a good gospel. It's the right gospel. The Gentiles are being saved. They're not becoming Jewish, though, and that was the problem. It's like, wait, they have to be Jewish to be saved. No, they don't. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Now, this is important. Titus was not compelled to become Jewish because he was an example to the Gentiles. In order to put your faith in Christ, you don't have to be like them. You just have to repent toward God, place your faith in Christ. That is what saves you and makes you belong to Christ. You don't have to follow the letter of the law. As a matter of fact, and Paul's going to say this in Romans, you're going to die under the law. You're not going to make it under the law. Why would you want to put that over you? You can't even accomplish it anyway. Well, Titus knew this inwardly, and he doesn't become circumcised. I'm convinced he and Timothy, the reason why we don't have them buddies together, Timothy did convert to Judaism as a man. If you know what I'm talking about, that was not a fun initiation. They did not like, I feel like Timothy always looked at Titus like, you, Gentile, just, you know, you're so lucky. You know, I, I don't know if that really happened, but when we get to heaven, you can ask him. Anyway. So, Titus was an example. This is how you could be a fully committed, mature believer of Jesus. You don't have to become Jewish. That's important. That's important throughout the entire New Testament. It's even important today. So what do these committed believers look like? We have Paul and Titus, two guys, committed believers. They love God. They love each other. They're starting this thing off. What do we learn from Paul and Titus? Well, as committed believers, they were committed to God's lordship. That was the first thing. And not leadership. I actually almost wrote leadership here when I was first studying through this because they, they were led by God. But leadership in our culture seems a little lacking for what it really means. They weren't just influenced by God and like, oh, God's talking. Let me see what he's doing. Let me listen into that podcast. They were fully committed to God's lordship. And we see this in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God. Does anybody have a translation that says a slave of God? Just curious. Some of you? Yes, in the back. Some translations actually translate this slave and it is the word slave. Paul introduces himself as a slave of God. I belong to, I am the property of everything I own, everything I am, everything he says. He is the master. They were committed to God's lordship. A servant of God, he was a slave. Who in here wants to be a slave? Right? That's not our first instinct as human beings. We want independence. We want freedom. We want choices. Unless we're wise enough to know, Lord, just tell me. Just do it. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. There's that dependence, but there's a step beyond that. You know, there's a step beyond desperation and feeling inadequate. Does God love you? Does He know best? who else would you want to be your Lord, to be your head, your master? There's no one else I would want other than Jesus. They were committed to that. Paul could have written this letter and introduced himself in many different, more impressive ways. But he begins with, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle. If you're new to church, you don't know what apostle means. You know, there's other churches that look at the, the word apostle and they think of it as a gift or a person and stuff like that. Here at Grace, apostle is so important. In the New Testament, there were apostles. There were men that were specifically sent out, personally sent out by Jesus in the church. The, a way to wrap this up is, In the Old Testament, God spoke through his prophets. There were prophets, priests, and then because the people were stubborn after Samuel, kings. But there were prophets and priests, and God spoke through the prophets. In the New Testament, he doesn't do that anymore. Instead of prophets, he speaks through apostles. And that's where we get the New Testament letters. So when you read about the authority of apostles in the New Testament, think the New Testament letters. The instruction and the divine authority placed in the Word of God, this is where we see that authority carried on now to today. It began 2,000 years ago. Jesus personally sent them out, and now we have the apostles' writing, which serve even today. They are still our apostles preserved through the writing of God's Word. And so, so there were messengers. The, another way of writing the word apostle is actually messenger in a way. But you should know, in the, in the church, good, strong believers, they love Jesus, they're great, we don't fight with them. There's some people that see like there's apostles now today, and the way that they'll say it is, well, in the New Testament, those are uppercase A apostles, but now we have lowercase A apostles. And they talk about people that are gifted in entrepreneurship and starting things up and going from place to place, which are great for the church. Those men are great for the church. They do great things. The way that we're looking at it in the Scripture, though, is there were apostles, and even though guys do that now, the apostles that are written about in the New Testament are these specific men that are called by God, sent personally by Jesus. And this is important. Uh, when Paul was first saved, and Ananias was afraid to go to Paul, Paul imprisoned, persecuted Christians. Ananias was a Christian. Ananias hears from the Lord that Paul got saved. And before he went to him, he goes, uh, Wait a minute, God. I've heard about this guy. I don't know that I want to go to this guy. Like, imagine if you lived in a day where the, the biggest terrorist against America, against Americans and Christianity, the most well-known terrorist, uh, all of a sudden was in town, and you found out he was in town, and God says, hey, I want you to go talk to that person and share your beliefs with them. You probably think, you know, I don't, I don't know that I want to die. I don't know what I want to be in that place. That's how Ananias felt. Verse 15, Acts 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul did suffer, but he never quit. He suffered for Christ. Why? Because Jesus was his Lord. He was willing to suffer, and he submitted himself to suffering because Jesus is Lord. When Paul was defending himself before King Agrippa, listen to his testimony. Imagine having a testimony like this. Oh, would you share your testimony today? Sure, I'll share my testimony. This part of it. He gets blinded by this light. He gets thrown off. The other guys around him are on the floor too. And he asked the Lord who came to him in, a, in, in this vision, I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to what you have seen and will see of me. Jesus tells them, this is why I appointed you. You know what's really interesting about that sentence? That's true for every Christian in this room. Do you know the New Testament says that you as a believer are Jesus' ambassador? You are his messenger of reconciliation. You are given the ministry of the word. You are his hands and feet, the salt and light, and you are a kingdom of priests. You are all part of the priesthood to where God has called you, if you're a believer, to do this. You are a servant of Christ and a witness. You are witnesses. Verse 17. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. This is where I would be like, uh, wait a minute. You know, I don't want to be rescued. Wait, you're, you're sending me somewhere where I need to be rescued. Can I go somewhere where I don't have to be rescued? Like Florida. I just want to go to Florida. I don't need to be rescued in Florida. You know, send me there. That's where that's, I want to be here. But if I didn't, if I weren't here, I'd want to be in Florida. Anyway, I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to the, them. That verb, sending, is, is where we get apostle. I'm sending you. You're my messenger. You're going out. I'm personally sending you. And verse 18, just a little personal insight to me. I got saved when I was 16. I felt called to the ministry. I didn't know that term or what that was. I just, I didn't, I didn't you know, have a Bible background. So I feel this call. I remember having my Bible and coming to my youth minister and saying, hey, I got something crazy to tell you. Now, now, sit down. Buckle up. Okay. I think God wants me to use this to go share with other young people the way that he shared with me. And Marshall Thrasher, who was my youth minister at the time, said, I think you're called into ministry. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what that is, but I do know that God is calling me to use this to go share with other young guys like me that didn't grow up in church. I really think this is what he wants me to do. And I started reading, and when I was 18, I had to make this decision: if I was going to go to college in Michigan, or I was going to go to Mississippi. And you would think that's an easy choice. And uh, but I remember reading, I remember reading Acts 26, this verse 18, and I thought God was telling me this: I am sending you to them to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and to share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When I read those words, I, I remember feeling overwhelmed that God did this for me, that I was in darkness. I should never have been saved. I wasn't a good person I wasn't making good decisions. I didn't want the right things. I didn't have good character. I didn't have good examples. I had nothing to to claim for myself. I wasn't an underdog like, oh, he's got it in him though. I had nothing in me. I was going nowhere intentionally. And God saved me out of darkness and brought me to a saving light. And when I read those words, it's like God was saying, I did this for you, now I'm calling you to go do this for others. I want you to be a part of my work in saving others like I saved you. Paul was committed to Jesus' lordship, committed to it. He was sent. And believe it or not, the reason why you're not in heaven yet Is because you are sent. You already have a calling on your life. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're a Christian, you already are called to ministry. Maybe not vocational ministry, but honestly, don't think too highly of that. People that stand on stage are not more important or valuable to the kingdom than the other parts. Just read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where there's, there's different parts of the body and we do different things and no one part looks at the other part and says you're better or you're greater. It's actually the most obscure parts that are the most honorable, Paul says. Your ministry may be in an office or on the field or doing whatever skill that you're learning. God wants to send you out into the world. You do not have to be a missionary like a like a named missionary, a labeled, titled missionary, or, or pastor, elder. You don't have to be that to do an amazing work that God has specifically designed you to do, and it is no less important than any other work. God has called you to this. And if you're committed to His Lordship, then you believe that He's called you, and you will follow Him. That is God's Lordship. So they were committed to God's Lordship. They were also committed to God's mission. Uh... Verse 1, Paul is servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for, this is the for, this is the reason, this is why, this is because, this is why he's, he's called this way, same way you're called, for the faith of God's elect, for the faith of God's elect. So what's God's mission? Number one, to believe in and belong to God. God's mission is that people would have faith in him and that they would be the elect, the elect, the chosen ones, his chosen ones to belong to him, that means you're belonging to God. You are his people. God's desire is that all men would be saved. They would be God's elect and have faith in him. So his mission is that people from all country, every nation, tribe, tongue, every ethnicity, God's desire is that all people would come to know him, believe in him, trust in him, that's the word faith, and belong to him, God's elect. Number two, to be transformed by the tr- truth. God's mission is that people would be changed from the inside out, that they would be transformed by the truth for the for, dot, 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 their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. People are being deceived. People are living in bondage because of lies, not actual metal chains, but mental chains. They're captive by lies of the enemy. And the the knowledge of the truth will lead them to godliness. It will lead them to freedom. That's why Paul writes, Romans 12, verse 2, "...do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God." That's godliness. What is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? God. What does he want for your life? How is he directing you and guiding you? That's what godliness looks like. And godly living, to use my southern twang, godly living isn't a life full of thou shalt not. It's not just about thou shalt not. Godliness leads to freedom and joyful living. I challenge you, give me someone that doesn't follow God I will show you where their chains are. You show me someone that says, the Lord Jesus is my master and savior, and I want to follow him. They have real joy and freedom. There's real joy and freedom in being a slave of God. So God's mission is that we would be transformed by the church. Number three, to live with hope. God's mission is that people would live with hope. You can't have hope apart from Christ. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began. Before time began. This is the tricky part. Who did he promise? Well, the promise was made in Jesus. If you if you know that, if you believe in the Trinity which we evangelical Christians do, of course. God the Father and God the Son have always been together, always existed together. And they, they have always planned, they have always known that it was going to be Jesus that would come. He was the promise. And so God made His promise before time began, before the world was made, before the foundation of the world. God had already appointed for Jesus to be slain. Because God's plan from the very beginning was to save his people to himself. This is our hope. Hope is looking forward to something with confidence. Um, you know, if you're a parent, you ever get nervous when your kids are hopeful for something you know ain't going to happen? <laughs> I get so nervous. They're like, oh, and we're going to play today and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how do I gently say I've got work to do? Like, how do you, how do you say that? With God, we don't have to worry about that tension. Every promise that God has made, we can have full confidence that it's going to come to pass. There's hope in eternal life. What does eternal life mean to you? If I were to ask you, what is eternal life to you? People in this room would have different answers, right? Clouds, uh, harps, some people knowing the new heavens and the new earth, seeing Jesus face to face, being with Him. I think we're going to have new work to do here on earth, but work that's not going to make us sad or tired or lonely or isolated, but it's going to be relational, it's going to be fun. Uh, I can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I can't wait to meet new people. I'm tired of you guys. I just, <laughs> just, there's so many other fish in the No, I'm just kidding. You guys just seemed a little, a little quiet. Was, <laughs> eternal life is part of our hope. Do you hope in eternal life? And then he says, that God who cannot lie promised before time began. You know, you could spend a whole Sunday listening to a preacher preach on that God who cannot lie. God's not dishonest. He never lies. He cannot lie. You know, there's certain things that God cannot do. Lying is one of them. It's not part of his nature, it's not part of his character. When he speaks, he speaks the truth. In, in Numbers chapter 23, you know Balaam, Balaam's donkey, and Balak and all, anyway, he, he finally prophesies, Balak wasn't into it. Uh, but he finally makes this blessing, and he writes it as a poem. And part of the poem is a famous line in Numbers 23 and 19. It's not on the screen, but 23 19, in case you want to look there later. He says, God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man, that he might change his mind. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we have hope in him because of that. Eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time again. This was sure, sealed, delivered before the world was even made. Gives me hope. So, they were committed to God's mission, and last, they were committed to God's word. Verse 3, Titus 1 In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Years ago, there was a small movement that started to develop in American Christianity. It was even written about in major Christian publications. If you read Christian magazines, you'll know probably which one I'm talking about, but there's a a liberal magazine that I just, they send it to me every time. I don't want to pay for it, but they give it to me, and so I read some of it. But they wrote articles years ago about this movement where Christians were saying, you know what? I'm done with church. Church is too hard. It's too complicated. There's elders and church discipline and opinions and blah, 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 and they said, you know what? I'm done with this. So they started this movement where people would just meet together in coffee houses and other places, and a lot of young guys my age at the time were totally captivated because they're like, no old people? Let's do this. We can run free? Let's have coffee and lattes and skinny jeans and guitars. So everybody was excited. <laughs> so the movement started to grow. They were, they were down with it. They were into it. Maybe not Newton, Kansas, but, you know, it really grew in the East and West Coats, which anybody would have assumed. Anyway, it's liberal. Anyway, so all these people started doing it. Well, it really gained some traction because they would just sit in circles and they'd be like, hey, what do you think the Bible says? Hey, what do you think ought to happen? Well, like this is way better than Sunday morning church. We don't have to dress up. We don't have to blah, blah, blah. And they were like totally digging it and it started to grow. But then the movement shifted a little to where some of the main proponents of of the movement started saying this, which just blows my mind. You know what? And we don't need preachers either. We don't need elders and preachers. You know, we're all kingdom of priests. And they started arguing that preaching is overrated. Now, some preaching's overrated, but not the function itself is not. It's biblical. Well, they started doing this, and young guys were like, oh, I don't know now. But it started moving anyway. Who needs preaching? And I remember thinking, hold up, because some of my friends were part of this group, you know, because I'm, I'm younger. I know you can't tell but I'm younger, and I started arguing, I was like, listen, listen, Jesus's ministry was preaching, right, we talk about his healing and his miracles, super great, great signs, but if you look in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus multiple times says, I'm not going to heal and do these miracles and signs over here, because my ministry is to preach the kingdom of heaven in all the towns, I need to go everywhere, and then you have letters like Titus and Second Timothy where preaching is a primary theme that's so important for the health and vitality of the church. And that movement fizzled out. Now, there's still little sprinkles here and there of people trying to do it because they don't want eldership and authority and, people, and all that stuff. But this is God's design and plan and blueprint for a healthy and fruitful church. You need preaching And I know that comes weird hearing a preacher say it, but if God ever calls me out of the ministry, I will know in my heart, not because of my job, not because of where I went to school, but because of this book that supersedes every thought and feeling I've ever had, says that God revealed His Word in the preaching. Began with Jesus and it never quit. Preaching is so important. And committed believers are committed to God's Word. And we need God to supernaturally raise up men to preach sound doctrine. Now, everyone in the church should be a mature believer, and that's our goal. We want to lead there. But not every person in the church is called to be an elder slash preacher pastor. Those are the same office, just described in different ways in the New Testament. Not everybody's supposed to do this but we need this. This is a part of God's healthy blueprint, good blueprint for the church. So in verse three, in his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This is God's plan for salvation, that the church would be healthy and that we would go through. There's four divisions in the, in the letter of Titus. We're just going over number one today. A healthy, fruitful church starts with committed believers it's led by qualified men that's what we're going to get to next week elders it's built through relational discipleship that's chapter the end of chapter one chapter two is really interesting uh it's relational discipleship and then its influence in the community is through christian living godly living good works that is god's plan for the church and you see that all in titus which we're going to go through which gets us to our last point uh, it's not a point. Our value, one of our values, our four values here at Grace Community Church, our elders worked through it. We were, I think it was like two years we worked through this. This is like part of our constitution as far as our DNA of what we believe. These values hold, st- if these values change, then this church is not the same. This is what we hold to. Our number one value is upholding biblical integrity. We are unashamed in our devotion of the truth and the authority of the Bible unashamed this is God's word it's over our head it doesn't matter what we feel think or do this is the authoritative word of God we will follow it no matter what even if it seems to go against every scientific and culturally relevant point does not matter people can call us bigots and one-minded who cares this word of God is the only word of God that's the Bible yes you can clap for that that's great that's a value that's that's great The last sentence in this value is important too. If we get this right, everything else follows. If we get this wrong, nothing else matters. And you know a biblical place where you can find that in? In One of many places, Titus. It begins with this commitment to the preaching of God's word. That sound doctrine is upheld. And that is our commitment. And so our prayer and request to you is that you would consider Uh, Who needs to be an elder here at Grace? Pray for them and also pray for me. I cannot preach sound doctrine without the power of the Holy Spirit illuminating my mind, helping me understand, giving me the gift of teaching, which I don't own and I don't have. If he decides to take it away, there's nothing I can do in my human power. My ask to you is that you would pray for me and be a praying church, that God would raise up elders, he would gift us to do what we're called to do, otherwise it will be in vain. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Titus. Thank you for Timothy, this great example. Would you open the eyes and ears of our hearts to know the truth that it would set us free, transform us, help us be a healthy and fruitful church. Our desire is for good works. We thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.